Thanks for downloading Making Waves from the University of Portsmouth. I'm Trudy Monk, and in my day job, I champion and support the incredible alumni of our university. We're really proud of our graduate community and how they're making their mark and finding solutions to global challenges. These interviews showcase how our alumni are making positive changes in their businesses, communities and careers. In this first series, we're focusing on the environment. What our alumni are doing in this space goes hand in hand with what the university is doing to ensure an environmentally sustainable future, including making the bold commitment to being climate positive by 2030. By empowering our community and coming together, we know we can make a huge difference. In this episode, my colleague John Worsey speaks to Steve Keyworth about analysing big data to understand the climate of the planet. Steve's work requires enormous expertise in analysing data. But how does he translate his findings into action with wider industries? Steve's work is focused on agriculture. How can their analysis start to impact on the use of land, animals and plant life? From the macro level to the global stage, Steve's work is helping us understand our planet's environment better than we ever have before. This is Making Waves. So I'm joined by Steve Keyworth, Portsmouth alum. And uh, Steve, you graduated 25 years ago as we speak, back in 1995. Uh, before we turn the clock back to your time at Portsmouth, uh, let's start with the present day. Um, Steve, what are you doing with your life today? I'm a uh, director of uh, Environment Systems, which is a, a data company working in environmental and agricultural applications. And um, for the last sort of 17 years, I've been building that as a business and um, and working throughout the world on on environmental and agricultural applications. Fantastic. And um, when you say a data company, what sort of um... What sort of work does that involve? Is that around capturing data? Is it around the presentation of data? Or is it really kind of encapsulate the whole piece? So we, um, a lot of it's around analytics. Um, we, we, we we're a big consumer of data. So wherever that comes from, whether it be from satellites, whether it be from climate forecasts, whether it be from some ground observations, um, and we're very good at analysing that data, conflating it, um, looking for um, understanding what's happening now in our world, but also then modelling the future in understanding opportunities, risks and scenarios. Gotcha. And are you doing that uh, then predominantly on behalf of clients or be specific projects where they've they've briefed that they want to understand a certain thing better or or do you also work in a kind of bigger picture way where you are putting your own analysis out into the world 
So a combination of both. We've uh-huh. got two sides to the business. Historically, the business has been a consultancy business, which is very much project-led. So exactly as you just said, we, we get a specification for a project and we put people on it. So it's a time and time and materials effort um, and often very bespoke. But we've also got our data services side of the business where we, a few years ago, invested quite strategically, both in terms of technology, but also in terms of market development and have developed quite a significant capability of handling satellite data at scale. Uh And we now have that switched on in a number of um, geographies around the world. Right. Okay. And what sort of, um, what sort of things is that data telling you then? It's giving us insights into agriculture in in the main at the moment. Um, So looking at um, where crops are, what crops are, where, how are they doing, um, what, what are they? What are we likely to get from those crops? Um, and but when we're starting to use that more as well now environmentally. So um, in addition to the agriculture, we we very much value um, the role of something called ecosystem services. So the goods that our environment gives us as people, mm-hmm. and we can use the satellite data and our data services and our modelling to better understand those goods and services that our environment gives us. Gotcha. So uh, this is this is a bit of a big question. Maybe it's an unfair question, but for but for someone who's listening to this, who's maybe got an interest in um, issues of sustainability in the environment, um, but doesn't have any expertise, um, are, are there particular things that 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 satellite data is telling you that that you think is sort of really worth the wider world um, knowing that perhaps you feel people don't appreciate at, at, at present. I think it's, it's, I always find it incredible how little we know, um, about our world. Um, it's well understood about how little, um, we understand under the, under the sea. Um, and we know how little we know about that. Um, and that, that's obviously an important area, but, um, most of our focus, not solely, but most of our focus is terrestrial. Um, and I'm also just amazed at how much, how little we really know about our, our terrestrial land, uh, our terrestrial area, our land. And particularly at a sort of a high tempo. So what's actually happening right now, particularly in current sort of COVID world lockdown situations, mm. what's actually happening out there? What, what's actually, what are the crops doing? What's the food security situation? And, and, and I, um, I find myself on a lot of, on a lot of calls at the moment around, around all those sort of subjects. Yeah. Is there, um, I don't know if you if you can obviously respecting client confidentiality and so on, but I wonder if you could give us a flavour of the sort of um, the sort of questions that you've tackled on behalf of clients, or the sort of um, decisions or actions that that uh, your work has made possible in that in that field of, of uh, environmental and agricultural work. Yeah, so if I a couple of examples on agriculture, one on sort of production, one on sort of risk and crop health. Um, so on agricultural production, um, I'm not going to be able to name specific crops, um, but in, um, for example, in Peru at the moment, we are looking at a particularly high value crop across the whole country and are able to predict uh, likely harvest time. Uh-huh. That becomes important for supply chain and markets, um, and that flows there all the way down through and down the supply chain through the agribusiness and also into the individual farmers in terms of um, risk and certainty and, and likelihood of return. 
Second example would be um, some work we're doing on a, on a crop in Colombia, and this is banana, where we're looking at um, impact of disease on banana and, and how, uh-huh. um, A, where all the bananas are being grown, and, and secondly, what's the impact of disease on those bananas? Um, because bananas, I think, are certainly the UK's number one fruit, and I believe right. they're one of, the, one of the top fruits in the world in terms of sort of annual consumption. In terms of environment, um, we look at, for example, in the Caribbean recently, we've been looking at vulnerability um, from increase in storm tempo, so particularly hurricanes in the context of climate change, uh-huh. and what's the vulnerability to um, to human assets in terms of risk from storm damage. Yes. And if you can simulate worst case sort of or increasing worst case storm damage, do you need to actually look at moving assets, whether it be a, a, a fire station or a um, or, or where you sort of um, site your waterworks or something, so that you're yes. more resilient to um, to increasing storms? Right. So it really is quite wide ranging. Then it's uh, everything from um, ensuring, uh, I suppose, the economic prosperity of farmers, and then ensuring the um, ensuring food supply, keeping everyone alive, but also helping uh, helping nations and communities to become. As you say, more resilient in the face of uh, of climate change. You say you've been doing this since um, two thousand three, I believe, is right, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, so seventeen years, and I guess in that time, obviously, the technology capabilities for for the and the amount and the quality of data that you can uh, that you can gather and analyze is, is um, I, I assume, is is probably quite radically improved in that time, yeah. along with technology. What what if you? Um, sort of observed about our, our changing uh, climate in that time? Um, yes, yeah, so certainly the, the, the data and technology has moved on significantly. I think we're... Um, early days, we were battling um, the whole concept of data and digital, and um, there's quite a an interesting cultural challenge in terms of being able to think with data uh-huh. and use data to make decisions. And I see increasingly that that is becoming less of an issue as both individuals, but also more importantly, organisations are more culturally ready to use data to make decisions, right. turn it from data to information to knowledge, and, and then on to impact. And is that just, um, do you think, a, a sort of a scepticism of, of uh, sort of choosing to believe what you can see with your own eyes rather than um, facts and figures and numbers on, on paper, as it were? It's, it's a combination of that and also a combination of uh, actually... Um, we, not just as in myself or, or environment systems, but the wider industry was not as good at it back then. Right. Um, in, in that, for example, satellites have got better since then. The modeling has improved. Sure. Our access to cloud computing and, and, and new forms of analytics have vastly improved. So actually we can answer a lot more um, lot more questions, a lot yes. more complicated questions, and we can do them much more in real time now rather than promising um, sort of jam tomorrow. Yes, gotcha, right. Yeah, so it's sort of gone hand in hand with the, the capabilities have enabled you to persuade more people then to, to, to tune in and listen. And um, I, I guess I guess the sort of things that you've seen are, are broadly in line then with uh, what feels like has become an evolving uh, understanding and an evolving consensus in most parts of the world at least 
certainly among the public, if not necessarily among all of the uh, the governments, that uh, our climate is is changing and that uh, it's changing quite rapidly, uh, and that that it it really seems to be on kind of a, a worrying trajectory unless we make some changes. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> we see that in lots of places. From um, we, we we've been working quite strategically in the Caribbean now for seven or eight years. We've been working in Latin America for five or six years now. Um, we've done various work in, in Africa, um, Australia, and, and, and elsewhere in North America. And uh, it, it's visible everywhere. And you're starting to see governments and organisations thinking quite strategically about how they um how they change things. Yeah. Um, an example would be we've just um, in Wales uh, recently, much, much closer to home, um, done a modelling exercise looking out over the next 60 years, about 2080, based on the IPCC climate forecasts of what crops could be grown in Wales over mm-hmm. the next 60 years. Um, based on on the projections, and so we've done that for 118 different crops, uh-huh. some of which are grown today, and some of which are completely novel right. and, and currently do not exist in Wales, but over the next 60 years could be grown. Yes. And that allows you to use the data to start thinking quite strategically in terms of both business and policy. Yes, I'm. I bet it does. Are you able to uh, reveal any of those uh, sort of surprise crops, or is that all confidential at this point in time? Um, it, 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 it's largely it's largely confidential, but we we were able to look at things like, um, um, and I wouldn't want this to be a, a headline, but tea, tea growing in Wales. Uh-huh. You can in, in the future you're going to be able to grow tea more in Wales than you oh. can now. Right now, whether you want to, whether yes. there's a market, whether there's infrastructure, whether whether there's any appetite is a completely different question. Uh-huh. Um, but you could. And, and therefore, if you know you could, then you can start to think about whether you want to. Yeah, and I think this is, I think this is the interesting, uh, or, or an interesting, I should say, side of climate change that uh, that maybe people don't consider as often. Quite understandably, in, in, I'm talking wider public here, that um, as well as obviously posing massive risks, and overall, I, I suppose it very much falls into the risk category. Um, yeah. But then, obviously, in terms of some of the the, the irreversible impacts, um, that, that that will create opportunities as well, which we may as well f- face up to and sort of see where the silver linings are, uh, whilst trying to trying to halt it as much as we can in its tracks. But just I think I think acknowledging that over the next sixty years things will become quite different, and that that a lot of that will not be good, but but there will undeniably be possibilities there that, that weren't before I, I was speaking to um uh in fact a researcher in geography here at uh, the university a while ago who was talking about um his research is into uh, historical wildfires and for him the motivation is very much around if we understand what how wildfire acted in in what is now the uk many 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 centuries ago uh we'll be better prepared for its sort of inevitable return as our climate changes that, that wildfires will once more become a thing as they've started to be in recent years but they're very much treated still as kind of freak events here but they will become more common in, in the united kingdom uh, as they yeah. were in the past and he was talking about you know that portsmouth uh you know will almost become sort of in climate terms it's almost going to be sort of you know the costa del portsmouth it's going to be much more mediterranean in climate um yeah. which sounds you know sounds lovely if you live here 
Um, and then you stop and sort of think, well, okay, but what does that mean for the actual Mediterranean? And, and what's that going to look like? Because it's not as if we just get the sunny weather, as we're all realising. We also get a lot of a lot of uh, horrors along with it. So uh, this, this may be uh, uh, kind of an obvious question, but what motivates you, Steve, to work in this field? Why does it matter to you to be doing what you're doing? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, m- m- many, m- many strands. I sure. mean, what motivates me is I think we can, we can help. We can, we can contribute to, um, to the evidence, to the debate and, and to the solutions, um, for very much contribute from that. We don't have all the solutions. No one does, but we can contribute to those solutions. Um, I think the other thing that motivates me is we've got a, an amazing team at Environment Systems. Um, which makes it also also very enjoyable, and and I've got a slight geeky side as well in that I enjoy the data and the technology yeah. piece. Although I'm much less connected to that day to day than that I used to be, um, I still enjoy it. And, yes. and for me, it's got a it's got a nice balance across all of that. Oh, that's great. When, when do you think about the impact of of the work that you do? I mean, we've we've touched on the fact that it's quite wide ranging, um, but but sort of. When you think about maybe your 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 legacy, what would, what would you like the outcome of your efforts to be? What kind of a, a difference would you want environment systems to have made for people? I mean, one of the things that we subscribe quite strongly to are the sustainable development goals. Yes. And uh, as a business, environment systems has a has an ethics policy which is staff owned, which is uh-huh. quite interesting as a right. as an owner and director of the business and and. Within that ethics policy, we um, we subscribe to the sustainable development goals, and if we can do things to contribute to their delivery through delivery of um, uh, innovation, intelligent use of data, intelligent use of technology, um, and to help people get better insight into agricultural environment, then then I'd be very happy. Yeah, yeah it's interesting uh, that you mentioned the ethics policy being staff-owned. We um, So at the university here, uh, recently developed uh, the uh, vision for the next 10 years, the vision for 2030, and um, that was done uh, through a lot of close consultation with staff. And um, actually, what, what uh, the senior management team found uh, quite to their to their d- d- delight, I-, I must say, but also it did pose them certain uh, certain sort of hairy challenges in terms of figuring out how to actually deliver this stuff. But the um, the staff were very much telling them, look, we want to be really ambitious and we want to set ourselves apart. We don't want to sort of be conservative w- with our, our goals for the next 10 years. We really want to have something exciting to own and, and something very meaningful. And so out of that has come all sorts of things, uh, one of which is um, the vision to be uh, not just climate neutral, but climate positive by 2030, yeah. So, which is a, a big a big deal for, to, you know, it's a lot to achieve in 10 years. Already gotten started with, with a lot of initiatives, but that's going to be very complex um, I'm sure that it'd be something where probably we could we could benefit from your help in that sense um, in terms of just thinking about what the challenges and opportunities are and how, how to go about making that making ourselves a university that really contributes positively to the climate as well as uh, minimizing our, our negative impacts on it but um, yeah I mean there's all sorts of work happening uh, happening here at the university we've got an, an initiative called revolution plastics that's getting off the ground which is um, linked to some extent with uh, the discovery 
a few years ago of a, an, an enzyme that can break down uh, plastic significantly faster than happens in the wild. I mean, you all know plastic dropped in the oceans will take sort of 450 years, a piece of PET plastic, plastic bottle or something, it takes about 450 years to uh, to break down. And even then it's, you know, it's microplastics. So it's still, it's still there causing trouble in the food chain. But uh, yes, yeah, so a Portsmouth scientist was involved in work to break, to, to, to uh, uh, discover and, and to then characterise and is now working on engineering this plastic eating enzyme so that it can be adapted for use in industry um, and we can actually really revolutionize the capabilities for recycling plastic and start to contribute to creating a much more circular economy um, and there's out of that and sort of an, as, as an adjunct uh, there's a big initiative called Revolution Plastics um, part of which is about helping the city of Portsmouth to become uh, a global showcase for a more sustainable way of living and a more a more uh, sustainable relationship to plastic. So there's all sorts of ambition here, and I think that's echoed um, in all sorts of organisations, you know, across the country. But it's it's really it's really interesting that I think people uh, at the grassroots really want change to happen. And I think now that is I don't know if this this echoes what what you've found in terms of clients that you've worked with, but it really feels like that's. Um, there's an extent to which governments can feel emboldened um, yeah. and large organisations can feel emboldened because by and large the public is behind this now and the public want them to act and, and has a sense of, of urgency. Is that borne out in your experience? Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, we recently um, became a carbon balance company, um, yeah. so we, we definitely monitor everything we do and... and um, we're only balanced at the moment, and at some point we need to be positive. But um, but we're not, we're not there yet. But we we, we are working on it yeah. as well. Yeah, it's a it's a big ask, isn't it? But it's exciting to think uh, that, that it's achievable. That that will make yeah. that will make such a difference. Um, I, I can imagine people listening to this feeling quite inspired by the things that you're talking about, and and. Um, imagining the possibilities uh, perhaps if they have relevant skills of, of being able to work with an organization like yours is there a way that uh, that people can get involved whether that's students or, or graduates um if they're you know if they're feeling excited by the things you're talking about is there a way to get involved with uh, the work that you do at environment systems yeah for sure um i mean as, as, as a business we are um we're very science driven um we are very committed to continual learning. Um, most of the team here actually are, are masters, uh, PhD, or even postdoc uh, qualified, and we have really strong links w with universities. And we're open in all sorts of levels uh, to um, placements. We occasionally would do an internship um, and, and and collaborations. I mean. But I would add, we only have a certain capacity. Sure. Um, it, it, it's not endless by any stretch. It's quite quite limited. But we are always keen to hear from um, from really bright people that are wanting to to um, to do their part in changing the world. Yeah. I um I want to turn the clock back in a moment, but back to your time at Portsmouth, and then sort of look at your your journey perhaps to where you are now. But uh, before I do that. Um, <coughs> I'm really aware that the, the, the work you do is, is so varied um, and the potential impacts and benefits of it are, are, are so broad. Uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you feel like um, someone listening with an interest in, in environmental issues would be 
uh, kind of happy to know about in terms of the work that you've done that we that we haven't covered already? Um, gosh, I guess to some uh, on a certain level, the answer to that is sort of almost everything. I imagine. So it's probably yeah. Quite... I'm just trying to pull out if there's any sort of sort of nuggets. I mean, I think I think environment. You, you asked environmentally. I mean, in terms of environmental stuff, we do. I think. Um, well, the thing that really excites me the most on the environmental stuff we do is our um, uh, work around natural capital uh-huh. um, and understanding the value of the goods and services that our environment um, gives us as people, whether that be carbon storage, slowing down water flow, making fresh water available, um, um, pollination, all, all, all the things that we get kind of, if you like, so-called for free yeah. from our environment. Um, and certainly the modelling work that we do and the scenario work around natural capital um, is, is, to me, really exciting mm. and, and fits so fits sort of hand in glove with the agricultural work we do. Um, so that, 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 would be a, that would be an area that I think would be worth um, picking up on. Yeah, definitely. Tell us a bit about that then. So, natural capital. I mean, it's not it's not anything that's come up um, thus far in any of the other interviews that we've done for this uh, for this series. So, um, yeah, I mean, what what what? Maybe let, let's look at, uh, at one or two particular areas that you feel are um, particularly particularly interesting or exciting. You've mentioned a few there: pollination, carbon storage, and so on. But what what do you sort of feel are the the big the, the, the areas with potentially the biggest uh, the biggest opportunity or impact there down the line. Yeah, I was certainly um, understanding sort of land capability and suitability for, for example, tree growing. There's a huge uh, policy push at the moment in the UK for planting more trees. But mm. w- w- where should we? And um, where can we? Um, what's the trade-off between? disrupting what's already that land use now. Yeah. Um, that's quite interesting. And um, also, I think I think flooding is quite a, um, uh, a difficult thing at the moment with increased sort of an, and both um, temporal, uh, but also in terms of extreme events. Mm. Um, and, and it's how to use how to use nature to our benefit there. So how to best um, use our land to help minimize flooding so rather than just having to put sort of grey infrastructure so cement and engineering in place which is always going to be needed but but we don't want endless amounts of that how do we use nature to help slow down water flow and we've got many examples of how we've we've used that and not just environment systems but in 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 the wider industry now in terms of say um uh, planting trees further up in the catchment that helps slow down water flow into downstream towns and villages Mm. um and that, that that quite simply um, say can save lives, and and, and that, that that's just um, I think that's pretty inspiring. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you you see it now with new housing developments. I think they're all mandated to have um, sustainable drainage systems, aren't they? So yeah. you'll, you'll find large ponds and, and areas where water can drain naturally. Um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, it, I suppose it's inevitable, really, that that um, we're going to have to get better at the use of natural capital because. Uh, it's firstly we're going to have to contend with um, so many changes in the environment and adapt around that in ways that are more sustainable but also um, just in general our use of resources uh, we we need as as humans to be a lot more canny and a lot more sustainable about the way uh, and the type of resources that we're using 
Um, yeah, so. and, and also the multiple benefits you get. So you might look at a tree in terms of, okay, it's good for biodiversity, but it's also good for slowing down water flow. Yeah. It's also good for carbon storage. It's also good for sort of health and well-being because you can walk, walk through them. It's good. it's good for so many different things. Yeah. Um, that it's, it's those multiple benefits we need to look at, which gives us some some if you like some quick wins yeah tree definitely. growing isn't quick but but but, but, <laughs> but, but, but if, if you get if you get that mix of land use and that natural capital right then then actually you can you can actually get nature working for us definitely yeah so it's interesting this this period of coronavirus lockdown i think is um is sort of making people appreciate um those little things like just just the benefits of of having you know, having a nice tree at the end of the end of your street or something, you know, yeah. you, you sort of uh, realizing a lot more the nature that's around us, and as you say, just valuing it from that well-being benefit alone. There's so much you really you really realize when it's taken away, and obviously, on a global scale, past the pandemic, we are you know, nature and the environment being taken away from us is really the the big picture that we're facing, isn't it? Um, so, so hopefully that will cement uh, cement that feeling in a lot of people that actually we really need to value this more than we do, um, even just on that very personal level. So let's let's look at your journey then, Steve, to where you are. So at Portsmouth, early to mid nineties. What, what what was your degree? What were you studying? Uh, geographical science. Geographical science. Right. Okay. So. I imagine then that that's quite um, you, you can draw quite a, uh, a clear line then back to uh, from from what you're doing now to to a degree in geographical science. What was it that drew you to uh, to that as an area and and why Portsmouth? Yes, yeah, so I've always um, <clears throat> I'd always had my eye on sort of what at the, I guess at school I was thinking of in terms of geography, mm. um, and that that has stayed with me without doubt throughout my career and all the way through into. Example: What I do with the Royal Geographical Society now, um, but what I what I did learn at, at Portsmouth was that yes, the, 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 all the different facets of geography, and Portsmouth also introduced me much more to the data and yeah. to um, sort of relatively early sort of GIS and and remote sensing and and, and various other sort of tools and techniques that um, that just sort of really sort of sort of flicked my sort of light on it and, yeah. and 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 got me interested and made me want to go and explore them further and and make use of them are there are there particular uh moments or experiences that uh sort of peering back through the mist of time that, that you you feel like maybe on reflection were a bit of a a catalyst for you in terms of the path that you've taken yeah i mean i i i, I remember doing my my dissertation on uh, the accuracy of historical maps in Portsmouth, <clears throat> and um, I don't necessarily think I did a particularly good job on it looking back. Um, but it, it, it just, um, and, and to be honest, I haven't really used historical maps an awful lot since then. But that personal project of getting into it, and understanding it, and getting inspired, and looking at the maps, and and getting into the data, and all, using the software, and whatever, that that really was the moment that yeah. sort of got me got me interested. And then and then the the, the thing that got me into my career was um, I remember walking down a corridor in the geography department, and on a on a on a on a cork board, which. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if there are still cork boards, but there was a cork board back then, um, was a job ad 
for a um, a digital mapping operator uh-huh. in, um, in 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 Wales. Yeah. And I suddenly thought, and it was just, it was just a piece of paper with an ad and I can't remember what it said, phone this number or send your CV here or something. And, um, if I'd had a smartphone back then, I'd have taken a photo and still had it probably. Um, and, um, and I, and, and, and I applied to it and I got it. And, um, and so I went straight from finishing my BSc. I had no interest in academia. I wasn't an yeah. academic at all. I always knew I was going to be a practitioner and get out and do it. Yeah. And, um, and I got that first job, and it was from it was advertised in the corridor of um, the geography department. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I think it's it's funny that you say about being a practitioner uh, more than an academic. I think I think that Portsmouth, perhaps because of its its roots pre university status, it, you know, I think still to this day it's a university where the the teaching, at, but also the the research, as we've touched on a little bit, is you know really heavily it's very applied you know it's it's about not just uh you know not just the academic perspective and the uh the sort of the theory but it's always very much rooted in okay what does this mean in the world how does this affect lives how how can this yeah. be applied to real problems and and solve things and i think that's um it's something that really shines through in a lot of the um if not all uh the alumni we speak to uh, is is that people really sort of have chosen to go out into the world and actually really make things happen, uh, almost regardless of what path they've chosen, whether it whether that has been through research or whether it has been through work. They've sort of taken uh, that spirit of getting things done and really sort of run with it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, if if anything springs to mind but um, I always like to ask um, sort of outside of uh, the experience of the course and things like that perhaps the place maybe maybe just life itself when you when you think about your time at Portsmouth uh, what's what comes to mind what do you think of Um, I've probably drunk too much (laughs) (laughs) please don't quote me on that Um, (laughs) um, yeah it was I just really enjoyed it. It's a good, it's a, it's a city with, um, that's not too big. Um, I enjoyed being near the coast. Um, I I made some really good friends there and, um, I just overall just enjoyed myself. Yeah. Yes. It's funny. I think there's maybe another sign of the way that the times are changing, but, um, the university, the the student unions recently, uh, recently closed the bar. In fact, there is, the bar is no more. It's, uh, it's being turned into a, a different kind of space because uh yes i think I'm, sh- I'm sure i'm sure drinking too much will will to some extent always remain a bit of a rite of passage for some students but it's uh i think it's probably not as much of a, a big part of student life as it used to be absolutely yeah and i'm starting to see that with my with my eldest and who's off to uni hopefully next year yeah, yeah you can definitely see how generations are changing yeah and uh, do you do you see in him um because again i think i think the same going back to that spirit in the staff of we want to make things happen we want to be ambitious we want to change things make things better i think that's true of uh, of, of young people as well as of students now you know people are really wanting to uh this generation have a have a, a positive impact in in the world that they live in it, it, would you say that's true of uh, uh of, of your son and his friends uh, yeah definitely um yeah I mean, they 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 want to that they, they without a shadow of doubt want to earn money on the way, but um, but they also want to 
spend their time wisely. And I'm saying that, I think that's my word rather than theirs. I don't know if they yeah. know what I mean by wisely yet, but, but I think they are wanting to spend their time wisely. And um, I, I, I'm always, I always find that inspiring as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I mean, you're, you're the man with the data at his fingertips. Do you think that's quite an optimistic note to end on? I think, I think, but bearing in mind, obviously, that the challenges of climate change are significant. But do you do you feel with with all of the information that you've uh, seen over the over the years, do you, do you feel optimistic about the future on balance? Do you think we're going to uh, kind of c- come through these challenges uh, with with human ingenuity and uh, a better understanding? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, we um, we're extremely adaptable. Um, Extremely, extremely innovative. Uh, I, I think the, the challenge will be speed, um, yeah. and I think in some areas we're going to need to sort of sharpen our tools and get a little bit quicker. Um, but I think, I think absolutely overall, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic, and uh, um, but we just have to get on with it. Absolutely, and you're certainly playing your part in that. Thank you very much for your time, Steve. It's a pleasure talking to you. No problem. Best of luck. That was Steve Keyworth, Director of Environment Systems, working his way up from a job advert pinned to a corkboard in Portsmouth's Geography Department. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Waves. You can find more inspiring interviews with University of Portsmouth alumni by subscribing to this series on your podcast app. And if you'd like to get involved and make some waves of your own, Let us know by emailing alumni at port.ac.uk or click on alumni from the Portsmouth homepage.